Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Nathan Moore. And I'm Eliza Wilson. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM, and also podcasting as part of the Tej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Later in the show, we'll dive into local news with the reporters over at Charlottesville tomorrow. They've got a lot to discuss this week about UVA's real estate developments in the community and how decisions get made. But first, we're going to catch up on some state news where Virginia has been having a week. Stay with us here on Soundboard. Well, we turn now to our regular correspondent on state news and politics, Peter Galaska. He's a journalist based in the Richmond area. Peter, it's been a little while since we talked, and we always talk about state news. Sometimes it's a little bit of a light news week. This has not been a light news week in the state of Virginia. There is uh, some scandal going on with pretty much every member of the executive in Virginia, plus a general assembly session. Recap a little bit with what's been going on with Ralph Northam. It's just been one bombshell after the other. Um, this is, I don't want to you know, recite old news. Of course, Governor Ralph Northam, our Democratic governor, um, was found to have perhaps had a, a medical school yearbook picture of him, either either as in blackface or as a Ku Klux Klan member. He first said he did, then he said he didn't. That's problem number one. Then Mark Herring, our attorney general, also a Democrat, came out and said when he was, I believe, at UVA, he actually did pose in blackface. Now, what's potentially much more serious, however, um, came, came up when... Um, Two women accused uh, Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, another Democrat, of sexual misconduct in North Carolina and Massachusetts. That could bring criminal charges. I looked it up, and the Massachusetts event supposedly took place in 2004. That's within the uh, Massachusetts statute of limitations for sexual assault. And North Carolina apparently does not have statutes of limitations on sexual uh, crimes. So there's a chance that he could be investigated in those two states or perhaps in some complicated fashion by the General Assembly. Right. And, and we're in this era now where, where stories of this type are being taken a lot more seriously, and, and rightly so, but there's also a lot of fact-finding that people are trying to figure out. Uh, you know, in, some years ago it was dubbed, he said, she said, that's gone away with the Me Too movement. And so, I mean, I don't can't really get into the you know, the ins and outs of it, because I don't know. But as I say, all of these three, these three events happening, or, or four events happening at once, is just uncanny. And it's really having a huge impact. Last week, the New York Post ran uh, a cover story, front page story, saying Virginia is for losers. So this is a black right. eye for the state, and on several levels, both in terms of just politics, and also people are worrying about economic development, and also the Democrats have been poised to do well in the um, General Assembly elections this November, but now that is up for grabs, too. Let's talk, I want to talk more about, about that in just a moment, some of the possible impacts and repercussions of all this, but, but back to Ralph Northam specifically for just a minute, he... he seems to not be leaving. There were a lot of calls for his resignation that seems to, he seems to be trying to say, no, I'm not going to do that. He's, I guess his staff has, has set him up with Alex Haley's Roots and, and a Tanahashi Coates book. Um, and he says now that he wants to make the rest of his term about racial equity. Um, to that end, he's, he's gone for some low-hanging fruit this week, uh, announcing earlier this week that he has re-enfranchised about 11,000 felons who've served right. their sentences. 
Uh, take me through the, the developments. Well, that's something that his predecessor, a predecessor uh, Democratic governor, Terry McAuliffe, had done in terms of restoring rights. And um, it's, it's 11,000 people who have served their terms will be able to be, you know, vote and be justices, uh, to be um, notary publics and the like. And it's, that's okay. It's a nice gesture. But, but the thing about Northam that, you know, he just has had so many different um, missteps as far as uh, handling the media and handling the public. And he's trying to have the apology tour now, where he starts at Virginia Union University soon, which is the oldest historically black university in the state. And he's trying to, to you know, calm everybody down, stay in office. And actually, I, I think a Washington Post White Shaw report uh, poll said, you know, it's pretty, Virginians are actually pretty split on whether you know what he did was wrong. Although just about every powerful Democrat in the state has called for his, his, his resignation. Yeah, I noticed that too, and, and this is kind of a curious fact of that poll, is that white Virginians, by a, a, a higher percentage, actually wanted uh, Ralph Northam to uh, resign and, and mm-hmm. called themselves very offended by it. Uh, black Virginians, it's not that none did, but it was a smaller percentage that said he should resign. What do you, what do you make of that? Well, I just think that there's different perceptions about, you know, that first off, you're dealing with a very loaded racial past in Virginia and in other states, not just the South, but all over the place. And so, you know, at one point, blackface was considered okay. It was considered funny. I mean, I hate to say this, but when I got my first journalism jobs in North Carolina in the early 1970s, they used to, this little newspaper ran a column every week called Among the Colored, where they had black club news. And that was considered perfectly okay. It was outrageous today. So I mean, that's the kind of thing you've got to figure. I mean, what, what, what is right? What is wrong? I mean, when is it? You know, white literacy or illiteracy on race uh, prominent? There was a UVA professor had uh, Miss Wolfolk had a, a really kind of interesting story about that on CNN. And it's like you know, you're coming against several things coming here. First off, how do you reconcile a racist past? Secondly, what's appropriate, what isn't appropriate? The third thing is, how fast should you judge? I mean, somebody says something, are you going to be out, off with their heads? I mean, or not. I mean, those are kind of all important points that need discussion. How do we tease some of that out? I mean, the questions about, about you know, what is appropriate and how fast do we judge and what do we do about it? I mean, the big reconciliation question. Well, I mean, it's coming out, but in fits and start in some very violent and, and awful ways, like the Charlottesville case a year ago, a year and a half ago, when all that mess happened, and then Donald Trump says they're both very fine people. I mean, what? Right. And this has kind of come at a time when, you know, if anything, there's more uh, acrimony, there's more divisiveness, everything else, and probably you'd need a discussion, but preferably without Donald Trump involved. (laughs) Well, let's take it back to Virginia and look at what all these scandals are actually doing now. So while everybody's looking at the scandals and saying, should he or shouldn't he resign, that kind of thing, the Republican House and Senate have passed a tax bill that, that seems more intent on giving some dollars back to taxpayers rather than shoring up social services. What's, what's all this doing at the, in terms of... Well, the I think the answer, the way I could probably try to answer that would be to... Let's, let's go back to the Wayback Machine to maybe three weeks ago, four weeks ago. <laughs> it was generally considered that this General Assembly session was going to be a short session where not a whole lot was going to get done. And it's really more of a sounding board for issues that will come into play during the, the many uh, political campaigns for the legislature this year, later this year. And so everyone's trying to set themselves up 
for uh, actually running for office. You know, kind of it's, it's a giveaway legislative session. So I think what's happening now is that the Republicans are really trying to make inroads with future voters in November, and <clears throat> they will be trying over time to take advantage of the meltdown of the Democrats, who had been in a very strong position before the um, abortion and, and, and blackface stuff to, to actually do well in, in the fall. Would you say that this uh, blackface controversy and, and the Fairfax uh, concerns as well has, would it be fair to say that that's, that's hurt the momentum? It's just sort of like... like oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question about it. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that could be one reason why just about every Democrat came out screaming for their heads. Um, because they've worked so long and hard to, to be in a position to, to, to push more moderate, if not progressive, policies. And this is like an unforced error. What, would, what, what impact will this have on turnout, on, on possible election results this fall? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I do know that in the, in the most recent congressional elections in November, the turnout was very strong. And that was an anti-Trump turnout. I, I think it's too early to say. I just really can't predict in, in February what's going to happen in November. But, you know, we'll, we'll have to see if there's an apology tour, how well that goes. I don't think that Northam or Herring will be out. Fairfax is another matter. I don't know what's going to happen there. Well, and speaking of Herring and Fairfax, those two uh, men are, had been, uh, the two likely frontrunners in a governor's race. Um, Absolutely, and that's... Who knows what's going to happen there? I mean, that's that's another great question. And it's just this, you know, these two or three weeks in February and January have really turned everything upside down. All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much. Maybe next week we'll have some answers. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Peter Galaska is a journalist based in Richmond. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM network. T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU and Tej FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on the show are, of course, just that, opinions, not the positions of the University of Virginia. Every week on Soundboard, we dive into the local happenings in development, planning, schools, and other local news. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm here with my co-producer, Eliza Wilson. Hi, Eliza. Hello. <laughs> well, to get the scoop this week, we're joined in the studio by Giles Morse. He's the executive director of Charlottesville Tomorrow, as well as Elliot Robinson, the news editor, and Emily Hayes, the news reporter. And this week, we are looking at UVA's evolving approach to development projects. And we're going to start with Elliot. Can you take us through what's going on with the recent projects on Emmett? Yes. uh, Recently, the city council approved the Emmett streetscape as far as it being compatible with the city's comprehensive plan. And it will involve reconfiguring the lanes on Emmett Street itself, adding in a shared use path and bike lanes. And the decision was made to shift the shared use path over to the UVA side of the road. So there was some coordination 
with the university as far as their plans for Eminent Ivy, which some of the city officials aren't exactly sure what those plans are at the moment. For example, in one of the presentations for the Emmett Streetscape, there is a building that somewhat overlaps on where the shared use path is supposed to go, so there will be some negotiations with the university as far as those two projects. And additionally, on that portion of the road, there is private property that will be the site of a hotel, and there's been discussion from the Planning Commission level and City Council of how that building will look, how it will fit in with the streetscape. And at the Planning Commission, there was some disagreement about how little of that property is being used for the potential streetscape compared to University of Virginia, which is giving up a lot of land for it. And one of the conclusions from planning commissioners was that, for example, the city has turned over an entire road, Brandon Avenue, to the University of Virginia, so the least they could do would be to give them a strip of land along Emmett Street to complete this project. And Emily, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with the Birdwood Golf Course? Yes, this is land in Almoral County along Ivy Road. Um, it's next to Boar's Head, which was also developed by the UVA Foundation. These are early um, acquisitions by the UVA Foundation. Birdwood is a golf course, and they're looking to renovate the, the Birdwood Mansion as a hospitality center. So Almoral County has been working with the UVA Foundation to figure out how to make that compatible with a comprehensive plan and make everything work. And what about the Cherry Avenue project? Is there a small area plan in progress for that? Yes, there is. Um, the Thomas Jefferson Planning District Commission, which is a, a coalition between various local governments, that's working on a small area plan for Cherry Avenue that sort of includes Fifeville and some of the other neighborhoods um, next to West Main. And the UVA Foundation does own some property over, there's the medical school there, and then there's some parcels behind that. So that's sort of a, an open question of how will that um, interact with the small area plan. Giles, I want to ask you some too, and thank you, Emily and, and Elliot, for, for keeping us updated on what's going on with these new plans and constructions with the UVA Foundation and UVA as a whole. And, and Giles, you were talking some about the process UVA goes through when it's coming up with these plans and some of the back and forth that happened on Brandon Avenue, that, all that development, for example, and what that might mean. Can you take me through that? Yeah, I mean, UVA is the biggest developer in town, and they're the biggest everything in town. And the approach of UVA Foundation has always been to look way far out in the future and be relatively ruthless in pursuing the best interests of the university. And with Jim Ryan coming to town and talking about community and working on community partnerships issues, you know, there's this sense that for sure that the university might change the way it goes about these things and that the president's office and the foundation and the medical school, all these entities might be in more of a unified conversation around the impact they're having on issues like affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And so um, with Brandon, it was just interesting. It was a story that Ruth Smith at the Daily Progress reported on in early December. It was a BOV committee meeting where they were going through development projects and approving them. And, um, you know, there was this, this back and forth that I think those of us in the news media 
is sort of like, you know, the, the needle scratched across the record because there was this back and forth between Maurice Jones of the Board of Visitors, who has a background in development and nonprofit development, basically asking Tim Rose, the CEO of the foundation, whether they ever think about displacement. And I think for us, we've never seen that type of conversation um, on the UVA side emerge in a public way like that. And it seemed to me um, not accidental that that was also the first public appearance, at least in my memory, of J.J. Davis as the UVA's new COO. So in that sense, you know, you had the BOV, you had the foundation, and you had the president's office in a kind of public conversation around, literally around displacement. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one wonders how the different sort of arms of UVA are um, kind of metabolizing that type of conversation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on the Emmett Street side or on the Birdwood side, that's kind of very much UVA-ville, right? Yeah. But Cherry is a different story altogether. And so the medical center is obviously one of the kind of, you know, intense edges of this conversation with its um, the history of displacement of Gospel Hill and the effect on the employment base and 10th and Page. I mean, you know, it's just, it's got everything in terms of the conversations that Charlottesville's having right now about race, equity, neighborhood identity, affordable housing. Mm-hmm. You used the phrase, uh, it stood out to me a little bit, relatively ruthless. <laughs> what, what has been some of that history? I, I don't know if that's totally fair. It's just that you have basically people who are developers of national scale using the largest pool of money with incredible state and local political clout to map out the master plan of a university's footprint as it grows. Mm-hmm. Okay, Well, that would be true... Of most universities, mm-hmm. okay, and but in a small town where the city doesn't have nearly as much stick, and then you cross a city and county boundary, there's very little opposition to UVA here when it makes its decisions, and the sophistication and scale at which it plays makes that any opposition would be easily run over. Mm-hmm. So it's really up to the university to decide to play differently. Mm-hmm. But with Ryan coming in and, and basically saying that and forming a local advisory committee to gather feedback on how they might approach these types Mm -hmm. of processes in a different way. And clearly there's the openness to that. The question is, how does that matriculate and operationalize, you know? Yeah. And well, so it is a time when there has been this UVA community survey reaching out, trying to find out what could the university do better? How should it think about its role in this town? How could it approach things differently? Some of the questions on this survey were what are your priorities? And they had people rank them. And some of the questions were affordable housing, uh, a living wage for its employees, just reckoning with its history and how that affects the community. There are a variety of questions, but I think those are some of the ones that I'll be watching to see how people rank them and uh, what that affects in UVA policy. Mm -hmm. And on the market side, you know, I mean, there's just how much housing does UVA provide for students, right? Because... Mm -hmm. Students who come from families with financial resources come in and enter the renting market. Well, it changes the economics of the renting market, right? So there's sort of clear economic roles that UVA could play in alleviating the pressure on availability of affordable housing in the rental market. Mm-hmm. Tease that out a little more as far as that goes. What, the UVA doesn't have as much housing as it has students, and so therefore 
thousands of students are sort of foisted upon the rental market and that drives up prices. Is that what we're seeing? Yes, that is exactly what especially city officials, planning commissioners, et cetera, talk about a lot. Because undergraduates are only required to live on campus for one year. And, you know, this Brandon Avenue residence hall is a, a new one, but there are many, many students living in neighborhoods. We recently had a housing needs assessment in Charlottesville. Um, and it's there's a huge, huge number of people who are spending more than 50% of their income on housing. And that's way above what the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development wants people to be spending. Yeah, they're even 30% or less, Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. So 50% is a critical amount of, of income. And it's actually a little bit hard to tell how many students are affecting those numbers. Mm-hmm. And then you throw in graduate students into the mix, and you have the medical center, and you have the law school, and the business school. And, mm-hmm. you know, these are people with, you know, essentially, you know, n- national scale incomes projected, and they're going to live in, you know... So if you look at the development of West Main Street, for instance, and what it's essentially been designed to do, it's not really for professional Charlottesville. It's really for graduate student and third and fourth year private housing for for students who want to live right in the sweet spot of the city. And so as you look out to different edges, whether you're thinking about what happens with the JPA corridor or Cherry Avenue. Mm-hmm. These are discussions that are going to come forward, and UVA is pretty much its blueprint and plan for, you know, growth and expansion on its rural county side and Emma Street side. It's pretty much locked up. There's not a lot that's going to move there. Mm-hmm. So that West Main development that we're talking about that you just described is like, I mean, it's right up against Tenth and Page, which has already been under, which has already been seeing some pretty rapid gentrification and changes even as it is, what has been, besides that one moment at the Board of Visitors meeting, what's been the tenor and nature of this conversation about displacement? Well, I'm not sure. I don't think any of us know what the conversation, I mean, that was, like I said, that to me, that story was so significant because that was the first time any of us saw the sort of public uh, airing of that kind of tension between the major players at the university. And like I said, you know, that was Jim Ryan's new COO's one of her first appearances, mm-hmm. right? And and she comes from a government background, understanding the economics of these issues and also understanding the social impacts and implications of these equity issues. And you have Maurice Jones who's a relatively new Board of Visitor member. Mm-hmm. The same, saying these things um, publicly in ways that oftentimes the UVA Foundation it sort of moves in mysterious ways, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's clearly not what President Ryan, his intent is for how the university is going to play as a local partner, but this stuff is complicated and there's huge amounts of money riding on it. Mm-hmm. Well, so what comes next with uh, all these developments? I mean, UVA is not shrinking, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so something's happening. Um, but what do, we, what do we see in the future? Well, uh, the Cherry Avenue small area plan, I just wanted to mention, that's coming up before city council on Tuesday. Um, and where Birdwood will keep coming up before the Board of Supervisors. They have to pl- approve this comprehensive plan amendment that the Planning Commission approved. And we'll also see their zoning application. So that's one thing to look out for. And the Emmett Streetscape has to work in concept. And the Emmett Streetscape would have to work in concert with 
UVA's plans for Emmett and Ivy. The city plans on beginning work on that corridor in 2021. So there has to be a very large uh, conversation between the city and the university about what exactly is going to happen at that intersection and when and what buildings are going to go in what location. And that seems to be one of, like, that's the fun mystery in this all is like, what are they putting there? <laughs> I think it's a mystery for uh, for us in the university, too. Yeah. It's like, kind of like, oh, hey, what's next? Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll leave it with the tone of mystery today. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for having us. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Giles, Emily, and Elliot, thanks for coming in. Giles Morse is the executive director at Charlottesville Tomorrow, and Elliot Robinson is the news editor. Emily Hayes is the news reporter over at Charlottesville Tomorrow. You can find out more at seavilletomorrow.org. Listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM network. T E E J dot FM. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. Well, with all the controversy at the state level this week, we're going to go a little deeper with a piece from Virginia Public Radio. During his campaign for governor, Ralph Northam appeared in a TV ad holding an African-American baby. The message was that Dr. Northam, a pediatric neurologist, cares deeply for kids, regardless of race. That made the picture in his medical school yearbook doubly shocking. But a fellow doctor told reporter Sandy Hausman that racism is not uncommon in the medical profession. As a young doctor, Irene Mathieu was dismayed to see the photo in Ralph Northam's yearbook showing two men in costumes, a black-faced minstrel, and a member of the KKK. I think it really just shows a deep and pervasive ignorance that is really sad in general to have in our society, but especially somebody who's graduating from medical school and planning to take care of children. She figures people just don't realize how painful the past can be for African Americans. The portrayal of people with brown skin as ignorant, laughable less than human. But Dr. Damon Tweedy, author of Black Man in a White Coat, told NPR that physicians are often biased, just like everyone else. Being great in chemistry and physics and biology and getting into medical school doesn't in any way insulate you from all the things that impact society and impact the way that you see people and the biases that you can sort of harbor. For example, in 2016, a University of Virginia study showed a significant number of white medical students and residents thought their black patients were biologically different from whites, that their skin was thicker and that their nerve endings were less sensitive, two false notions that may have led them to treat pain less aggressively in people of color. When she worked at one of the nation's top children's hospitals in Philadelphia, Mathieu found racial bias even extended to kids. 
Specifically, there are studies that show that black children who come to the emergency room get less treatment for things like abdominal pain and even fractures, which we can all intellectually understand are a very painful thing to experience. It's not that doctors actually want black children to suffer, but they may act on what's known as implicit bias, unconscious feelings about certain people. And we all have it, whether we like it or not. And not necessarily around only race, but around a lot of things. Part of the way that our brains are wired as humans is to make quick decisions and to have biases. And studies show that we lean on those biases more when we're tired or burned out, conditions often suffered by physicians in busy emergency rooms. The feelings of negativity or the slight pro-white bias that residents had towards pediatric patients was about equal to the biases that they had for adult patients. On the flip side, Mathieu, who chairs the Equity and Inclusion Committee at UVA's Department of Pediatrics, says patients have their own biases. It's a little bit hard to parse out what is racism and what is sexism and what is the two combined, but I've certainly had a lot of cases where even after introducing myself as the physician, a family will mistakenly address me as the nurse or as somebody else, or they'll look to the male or white male person in the room as the authority, even if I am the most senior physician in the room at the time. And there's data showing some African-American patients may mistrust their white doctors. Patients of color tend to both show up more when there is a physician of color and also to follow the advice of physicians of color more than they follow the advice of white physicians. So it seems like there's a difference in trust there. She thinks the problem could be addressed better through medical school education and the admission of more African-Americans to med schools. Part of what motivates me in pediatrics is the look that I've seen on so many kids' faces when they realize that I'm really their doctor and I look like them. She adds that medical students must also be taught more about the history of their universities. To know, for example, that the Medical College of Virginia, now VCU, actually robbed the graves of African-Americans in the 19th and early 20th centuries so students could dissect them. I'm Sandy Hausman. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Nathan Moore. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marwen Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us over at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TEEJ FM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Have a great week.